0: and i was like why are you scared it's just a tractor and he's like i can die
1: (laughs) you're both alive still so knock on wood
2: yeah we're knocking some wood down all right
1: Right? (laughs) i'm jane z and this is farm to future the podcast all about eating better for the planet so if our last episode was like hearing joel salatin talk in an auditorium you can think of today's episode like grabbing a beer after the lecture I thought Joel's vision of large-scale regenerative ag was wonderful, and a little bit lofty, so I thought who better to debrief with than two young dudes who are building a farm from scratch right now. Introducing Alex and Miguel, the two weekend warriors behind Fern Mill Farm, a 158-acre property in the woods of Connecticut. Their vision is to keep most of the trees intact and raise chickens and ducks and maybe goats and sheep who get to hang out in the woods where there'll be mushrooms, as well as raised beds with all kinds of veggies from radishes to cucumbers to tomatoes. Today, the two guys and I dig into some of the gnarly challenges they're dealing with on the property and their response to questions like, can alternative farming feed the world? A really important perspective that Miguel brought, especially, was that of low-income folks. Which, frankly, we need to talk about more on this show. Because everybody's got to eat. Miguel shares some examples of his neighbors in the inner city who live off of food stamps and can barely afford one meal a day for their families, let alone, let's just call it, bougie farmer's market produce. So the guys today share some solutions they're working on, and push us as consumers to choose less corn-based products and get more involved with local politics. Like, did you know you could write to your local town or state or province and ask for bylaws that allow farmers to sell meat directly to consumers? And so small steps like that do add up and make a difference. If you are new to the show, welcome, and I hope you stick around and subscribe. And with that, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. First of all, how did you two meet before taking on this huge project together? And maybe tell us about some of your favorite foods growing up.
0: I was a terribly awkward high school student. You know, I was just a guy sitting with with like this Mac laptop and these kind of break areas. Miguel approached me, which is super social. I was scared for my life.
1: Because Um, of Miguel or? No, just because because of Miguel. Yeah,
0: (laughs) because (laughs) he's this big dude, you know. Uh, I was like... You know, I was just kind of antisocial, but we really hit it off. I mean, it did, the next thing I know, he's living in my house because uh, yeah. he lived with us during <laughs> high school. So it escalated rather quickly. And it, as far as food, I think the epitome of like comfort food was my mom's chicken curry. Like it was mm. just one of those basic things for us, but it just like really just induced the Zen upon eating it. Mm. So it was just like kind of a fresh thing. I mean, we didn't really grow up with a lot of processed food.
1: Nice, fresh chicken curry. That sounds amazing. Miguel, what's (laughs) your side of the story?
2: nah i think it went just like that like i approached him i was like hey what's up he he was pretty quiet dude and like he was cool and stuff like that And, and and just over the course of time is we just ended up hanging out we didn't really hang out with anybody else so we actually ended up being kind of loner friends together kind of like creating our own little space and that's really how it happened like this guy has done so much for me i appreciate this guy with so much you know like energy and Thankfully, because of him and his family, I've gotten to experience a lot of different cooking styles. And when I grew up, it was pretty much a good dish, but it was the dish, you know, like it was always like rice, beans, and some type of protein. It was always that. It wasn't like, you know, switch it up with lasagna or like switch it up and make something with like eggplant.
1: Are you guys both pros in the kitchen?
0: I would say actually Miguel more than me at this point. Oh, yeah. I I, I exist with a certain level of understood hypocrisy, which is we're advocating for these kind of really great food systems, but like literally before getting on this meeting is I'm cramming ballpark Frank hot dogs because I just like, I don't have the time to do anything else. And that's always like the struggle that I have is like, I'm obviously hell bent on kind of the project that we're doing, but is how do I really live what I'm preaching or attempting to do has been kind of undertaking. Whereas Miguel, he's dedicated to the kitchen. Him and his partner will expend that time to cooking way more exotic stuff than I will do for myself.
1: Right enough, yeah, time is a luxury. And if it makes you feel any better, you're balancing out all the processed food with this big project you're doing, right? So right. in the end, it's net positive, I think. <laughs>
0: right, we're trying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and just for a little context, Alex, your background is half Indian heritage, right? Correct. Um, Miguel, what's your family heritage?
2: So um, my mom's Dominican and my dad's nice. Puerto Rican. So basically just like um, a mixed uh, island recipe, <laughs> but I was born on the, in St. Croix, so I, it was definitely a, a little bit of a, a mix of everything that the Caribbean had to offer. If you ever do go to the islands, um, just like something you could find anywhere, it's called a Johnny cake. It's, it's kind of like what everybody eats down there, it's like a snack. It's kind of like my go to if I were ever down there
0: what is then it like a napas
2: would be great it's like fried dough
0: oh, like a little oof. fried
2: dough hey Ani, when you order indian food and and they give you like the little uh, little flatbread what is that oh, called uh, naan? naan or porota yeah that is sim- it's similar to that but a little bit uh, puffier
1: i mean who doesn't love fried dough right yeah right.
0: exactly <laughs>
1: So how did Fern Mill Farm come about? I know at some point you guys found this piece of land, but when did you guys start talking about food systems and wanting to actually do farming yourselves?
0: Ever since I started working in relation to the meat industry, I always knew that food systems were extremely important. Um, I technically got my degree in political science, and we just saw how mm. agriculture can impact, call it, you know, social stability overseas or whatever it may be. However, once I just started working in this industry, I've now seen it upstream at its core. You know, it's like, yes, I know this chicken in the store is in fact a living animal and it's now departed and I'm going to eat that and I accept that. But once you actually see the process and call it stress exerted on animals, it's not something that I was really okay with. So then it became a mission statement for me personally at the time to fix that somehow. And for me, enjoying being outside and, and trying to kind of find more of a time to do that, the farm became the concept. I had the opportunity to procure a, a piece of land. However, I, I wouldn't necessarily see myself following through on the project if I did not have the support of Miguel. So there was just kind of this conversation of, hey, we're doing this, and just kind of like dragging your brother along, you know, um, <laughs> but at the same time, making sure that, that he was vested and, and frankly, I mean, th- there's moments where I, uh, you know, I'm moody, I accept that. I'll be throwing equipment or something. And he's like, it's fine, it's fine, man. You know, so it, it's really <laughs> the kind of that yin and yang that works out really well. So that's really how the farm came to be though. This is our first winter on the property. So it's been a huge learning curve of just mm. seeing how that land handles itself. And we're doing something a little bit different than I would say traditional permaculture. We're not looking to install pasture. We are a fully hardwooded lot. So we're actually doing agroforestry. So we're carving out a quarter acre at a time with no well or no electricity on the property presently and still making it work and trying to minimize our cutting and our invasiveness on that environment, but increasing its biodiversity. So that concept has been a trial by fire process. We will plan things to the nth degree, even using project management software. And then we get out there and we do not achieve one iota of what we had hoped, just because you're kind of <laughs> The at land
1: odds. does not speak Excel.
0: <laughs> exactly. So it's been very character building. And I've always had a bit exposure, like I worked orchards growing up. All of this is pretty new to Miguel. I mean, I think one of the most endearing <laughs> moments was him sitting on a tractor and just being mortally petrified a vehicle, oh you boy. know, and I was like, "Why are you scared? It's just a tractor." And he's like, "I can die." <laughs> hey, man. Miguel,
1: have you ever ridden a tractor before or driven a tractor?
2: Like it's it's kind of crazy because uh, I've actually taken a vehicle like without a parent or something like that at like an age at nine. But like I'm in this big tractor and I'm I'm in a hill and that's scary, you know. <laughs> It's pretty big equipment. Um obviously like I don't want to hurt my friend. I don't want to hurt the equipment. I want I'm cautious when it comes down to, to stuff like that just because you know I, obviously I, I don't want to break nothing. So
1: Yeah. Well, you're both alive still, so knock on wood.
2: There you go. Yeah. 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 We're knocking some wood down, all right. Right. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah so agroforestry. So what can you grow in a wooded piece of land
0: that's all dependent on where you are right so like just your general climate west coast versus east coast and what you want to do right so it's deciding how invasive or non-invasive do you want to be uh so for us personally we're we're digging out a wallapini which is just this underground greenhouse it does not utilize any heat source so i don't have to pay for for propane or anything it's just kind of geothermal and hmm. so out here that would allow us to grow through the winter. And that's one of those projects that has just been kind of dragging on because we've been at odds with the seasons as well as the day job. It's finding the time, yeah. but you can grow pretty much anything. I mean, if we want to grow citrus, then yes, I would probably have to install, you know, a more legitimate greenhouse with heating to replicate that environment. But anything call it native or Ireland to the new England area, we, we can grow still in that environment, you know, for us, cause we're, breaching into spring. I mean, our first wave is going to be radishes, beets, kale, Swiss chard, these kind of frost resistant or cold weather loving produce along with lettuce and other greens as well. But, you know, we'll transition eventually over to doing our cucumbers our tomatoes and all of that. The other thing is too, because the amount of physical effort it would take for us to combat the rock situation on our property, Mm -hmm. we're going to a raised bed structure or a hugel culture as it is, because we have so much decomposing matter, (laughs) we can make these really water sequestering garden beds that we don't have to worry about too much because we're not able to go to the property every day. We don't live on the property. For me, it's a 20 minute commute. And for Miguel, it's an hour uh, from this place. So if we can kind of make them self-sustaining, it's advantageous to us in a lot of ways in terms of agroforestry too. So if you have canopy cover, we're very excited. We've started our uh, our mushroom process. Oh. So we're doing pearl oyster mushrooms and chicken of the woods. And so we've been inoculating logs for the last few days. We have a lot of wetlands and shade cover and we're hoping for the best. The, those things make me slightly nervous. I can wait 3 to 6 months to a year like for shiitakes or something and you don't know how it's going to go. You know, right. some foreign <laughs> fungus can show up and kind of ruin your day.
1: It's kind yeah, of an sure.
0: intense process. I was a very studious person before this process and had a lot of like really great, cool ideas that were driven by various pieces of literature. Joel Saladin at the core of that in a lot of ways. But once you start doing it, it doesn't always work out exactly like you <laughs> described. And, and I think right. that, that's where I, anyone who's maybe thinking about getting into the process, you have to be a very meditative and peaceful person which I've become more of that since starting this project, because you, you can't get mad at everything that doesn't exactly meet your expectation because you're just going to drive yourself up a tree. You know, it's yeah. just not how nature works.
1: Yeah. Even though there's a lot of trees on your property.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you, you both alluded to some of these surprise problems that have come up. Give us some examples. Like what are some of the things you're dealing with right now?
0: I think one is an inherent over-optimism of how productive we can be. <laughs> it's really like <laughs> our own, we're our own issue. We're like, all right, we're going to do these 10 tasks. This task is going to take approximately an hour. And then you revisit your timeline for the day and it's been six hours later.
2: It's not like we were just like s- sitting down on our cell phones. Like we're there, like from the morning till sunset, no break. And it feels like, you know, we we plan. We don't eat like, lunch.
0: Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah. It's whatever. I mean, like, it's not a big deal. But the real problem is the progress at the end of the day, you know?
0: (laughs) Right. You know, even when we're trying to clear dead debris and just running chainsaws, it's just the physical exertion and the wiriness of branches is you want to just stack super neatly and it just, it won't. I I almost prefer not to use equipment because it introduces a whole nother set of problems, which is we'll just be using a tractor and then all of a sudden it'll just stop. And it's not because the equipment's old or broken in any capacity, but because we're pretty, you know, hard on it. Uh, a fuel filter can clog, but we don't know that off the bat. So the the diagnosing process with that tractor just absorbs the remainder of your day. Then mm. it's finding parts, and because we have the day job, weekends most of those places are closed. So you've now you're a few days, you know, out a week out from kind of getting back on track. But aside from that. You know, you have trees that you'll you'll cut to try to clear out of the way, and then you don't realize they're rotten in the core. So now it's mm. this huge, scary widowmaker potentially, as we call them. And you take an hour to just very carefully block it, make sure it's going to fall the direction it needs to go. And uh, another thing is too is that we're not a level lot. We have a lot of incline. We can't bring a vehicle all across the property. So usually we carry about anywhere from sixty to eighty pounds of equipment up by hand. Um oh, whoa. about half a half mile, I would say. You think it's a oh. half that,
2: mile? that's the start of the morning. Yeah, up a hill. It's like it's like the workout that starts the workout.
1: You guys must be jacked at this point. Yeah. Uh, the sounds diet like hard needs work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. right.
2: do it right. don't work out like that, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) If you did that every day.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to that. No, I mean, I'm fighting the COVID-20 still.
1: That's fair. We got to find you guys some funding so you can quit your day jobs and just work on this full time.
0: That'd be amazing. Yeah, and that's definitely my end goal Mm -hmm. is proving that it's financially viable. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think
0: that's something that a lot of smaller scale farmers struggle with one there's legislation that does not particularly help them depending on which state you're in some are much more lenient than others and then at the same time you're limited to your distribution capacity and mm. who's willing to entertain you you know farmers markets have a limited you know number of spots we for example operate in Mansfield Connecticut it's a very large agricultural community so whether or not there's a venue for us to sell even within our own town becomes tough And Mm -hmm. so you have to go and kind of find other markets or make your own when you're trying to call it man, the land, the whole digital marketing schema, which I think works great, is is really hard to maintain. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. terrible with Instagram. I I, I wasn't a social media person before, but now it's just like a really awkward usage of just trying to kind of put that content and and genuinely share our experience. But. You know, it's like, I swear to God, this picture doesn't look that different, but we did in fact make progress.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's like you had
0: to be there kind of moment. So (laughs) Mm, we're trying to find mm -hmm. our community and we really got on the property in September. So it really hasn't been that long for us.
1: It's like your first growing season. Really?
0: Yeah. Yeah. truly.
1: When you say that it's a tough market, is that because Mm. there's a lot of competition of other farms around you?
0: Yes. So there, there's a lot of competition because there are other farmers. Also the population density. Is just less. Mm. So once you've mm-hmm. kind of found your farm, you trust them, you're pre ordering your chicken. So, like, you do have to make these really strong relationships with the farmer because, you know, if they're cutting under custom laws, which is the farmer is going to dispatch that animal itself, you as the consumer technically have to essentially pre order that chicken. You are going to buy the live animal and mm. then you're making arrangements for its processing post facto. That requires a lot more communication than just going to the grocery store. So once they find that community, they're going to kind of stay. And for us, we have a desire to also impact the restaurant kind of capacity. One, because I I can get that commitment of volume. There's a greater culinary awareness. However, there's a limited number of restaurants with those kind of flex menus in Connecticut and especially in our area. So it becomes this question of, do we drive an hour and a half down the coast? Do Mm. we make for Boston or New York and even attempt... To kind of mess with that scene,
1: your guys' plan is still to have animals on the farm, right?
0: Correct. So we're going to kind of start with poultry, and then we would move to small ruminants. So that being goats and sheep. So so goats eat a lot and a little bit of everything. They're also high maintenance. They're escape artists. There's so a lot of components <laughs> to have why I personally am on the fence about having them. And sheep work out, but again, their diet and their needs are a little more intensive than poultry. And I would also say as from a market standpoint within the US, chicken first and foremost and duck slightly less so, are very common parts of like the American diet. Mm-hmm. Lamb and goat, not so much. And beef are not something I really wanna entertain right now uh, just cause of soil compaction, some issues there. And with pigs, I would really, really like to raise pigs, But I'm still trying to determine a breed that would suit our environment best. So there's American guinea hogs, which are small and and very non-invasive creatures. They're not nature rototillers like the rest. (laughs) The problem is, though, is that their time to maturity for meat is is pretty long. Whereas Mm -hmm. most other meat animals like Coon Coon or other pig varieties, it's like seven to eight months, potentially, depending Mm on diet. Um, and the same is true of lamb and goat. Usually you're only dealing with them for around seven months. And we're trying to follow uh, a set of guidelines called the GAP four okay. guidelines, which is just about the, the health of the environment as well as the animals themselves and how you raise them. So do you have enrichment? Do you have shade? Do they have access to pasture pretty much the entirety of their life? If they are being utilized for meat, what is the transit time even they take into account? So to hit the greatest rating with gap four is you need to require that there's no transport off the farm that you're processing on site to minimize the stress of the animal. So we're really making that our mission statement is if we cannot strive for that standard of excellence, we're gonna opt not to do it at at that time.
1: Wow, so you're gonna do your own processing on the farm.
0: Yeah, that is the goal uh, eventually. I mean, we might do some USDA again, depending on what our relationships become with restaurants. Because we would legally have to to sell to those markets. For me, stress of the animal is something I really would prefer not to compromise or minimize to the greatest extent humanly possible.
1: And is that because most processing centers are not humane to the animals?
0: It kind of depends. You know how how you view that. So I would say the the current industrial process for me is pretty tough, and it, it's all about the company. Like you might have a grower that's close to a facility, so. I mean, technically, that's less stress on the animal because it traveled less, but actually at a facility level, how they're managing their animals or the stock before they're being brought to their end, that's on a per company basis. You can have a processes where the plant's actual design just lends itself to maybe a little bit of less stress, but it wasn't a proactive decision by the company. And I think that's mm-hmm. what really matters. So those are kind of those weird components of making a relationship with the USDA processor And actually almost audit their facility and see if it's ethically something I'm willing to align myself to.
2: We also talked about the possibility of having somebody come to the farm and prepare the meat in a halal way, right?
0: Correct. Yeah. So it'd be halal or yeah, just on-site processing in general, which is becoming a little more common because especially with COVID, a lot of the processors that smaller scale farms would utilize, they're booked out for the next two years. Um, wow,
1: so they have contractors that can come to the farm and do the butchering, do the dressing for uh-huh. you? Yep. Oh, okay, because I was going to say, like, Miguel, are you prepared to do some dressing of the chickens?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really more worried <laughs> about the goats.
1: Yeah. yeah, chasing down the goats. <laughs> the
0: chickens
2: yeah. and the goats, I don't know. Again,
0: M- Miguel's the gentle giant, right? He's like, I will help you with anything. I draw the line there, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's like i will carry a chainsaw up this hill but i will not run around chasing a goat
0: That's <laughs> yeah
1: miguel what's your kind of dream for the farm like let's say a couple of years
2: i don't know i see the farm as being like this beautiful place we can all go to and like just kind of like take a hike or like if they want to camp or come and check out the animals like Alex said, I really don't have a background in this type of uh, this type of thing. So when he like breaks down the ideas and like the whole concept of the farm, you know, for me, it, it really sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we should know a lot more about the things we eat and how to take a piece of land and get fruit from it. All of those things, I see them as fundamentally, like, good for every individual to know. And it it is about, you know, exploration, education of, like, the people who we don't have exposure to this type of stuff. So uh, that's why I'm really invested Mm -hmm. into it.
0: Miguel comes from the inner city. So, like, for me, I grew up fairly rural. So there was just, like, a passive exposure. We drove past cows. And then there would be a month where all of a sudden the cows were gone. And eventually, I don't know you picked up on where did the cow go. Um, you know, <laughs> to the so, dinner
1: table. <laughs> exactly.
0: So that it was a passive thing. that you. We were just kind of exposed to, and it was, it was, you know, it was nothing. It was just part of our community. But I think the reason I value Miguel's input so much is that coming from the Intercity framework, that exposure doesn't exist. Like they've never seen the animal in which they've consumed, except maybe a picture
2: mm-hmm. or marketing. Yeah, like. Yeah. My kids know more about Peppa Pig than a real pig. So it's kind of there.
0: <laughs>
1: Facts. And so part of the vision for Fernmel too, is to keep it local and making good quality food accessible and affordable. Is, is that part of the vision?
0: Absolutely. One of the, the famous Miguel Rans, He's like, I can't find a decent avocado. I can't find a decent tomato. I don't even find the potatoes I want in his area.
2: It's a food For me, desert. me, It's like, all right,
0: there's an underserved market. No, it is a food desert. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and that is the really prominent term that we, we want to combat directly, which is where do farmer markets go? They go to, unfortunately, I would say the more socially elite towns because there's a, a market capacity there. For me, I don't need to make a million dollars off the farm. I don't. But if I can make a program work with the state, and those populations now have this access to nutrition, then I'm all for.
2: I've been living where I've been living for like the last 20 years, and I'm really close to my neighbors. Um, Ebony is one. The thing with Ebony is that she's had to live and do groceries for her and her kids with a very small amount of money and food stamps, and she doesn't have a car, so just getting to the grocery is a challenge in itself. But when she goes to the grocery store, she basically has to like plan out every meal for the month. You know, she tells me it's a struggle, you know, and sometimes situations like this, the family doesn't cook three square meals. It's just one dinner and you kind of got to figure it out for yourself for like breakfast and lunch. It's like, thankfully they're going to school and there's lunch over there. You know, because for me, it was like that. There was only dinner at home and you got lunch at school <laughs> and that was free. Another example is Gloria, When she goes to the grocery store, yeah, and I know this because obviously I observe and I ask questions, I'm close to them. She goes and she buys primarily like a big sack of rice, a whole bunch of Goya beans and the tomato sauces and like, you know, a lot of packs of pork chops because... That's kind of like the token meal in their house. It's like, you know, rice, beans and pork chops. And she'll buy like one head of lettuce and, you know, save a little bit of food stamps to buy another head of lettuce. Just the the education isn't there. And like, this is what's easy. This is what is affordable. Like, if you want to make it like a nice elaborate dish, you know, a lot of ingredients go into that. But if you're just making something as traditional as rice, beans, and pork chops. You're using very limited amount of ingredients and they don't have to be as diverse. That makes a difference too. Like, you know, keeping the same type of dish, limits on the grocery bill, you know, all of those things these ladies had to mentally accommodate for just because, you know, the money is short. So, but you know, obviously everybody gotta eat.
1: Yeah, that's so true. But no, Miguel, I I really appreciate you sharing those perspectives because i feel like in the sustainable food world there's a lot of privilege right like we're talking about doubling the cost of food for like high quality nutritious vegetables and meat meanwhile there's a lot of people like ebony and claudia who are just scraping by to feed their families
2: definitely for them it's this is i mean like you know the vegetables and and all these other things go up but like they're looking at you know the price of chicken <laughs> Their stock market is the price of chicken and the price of milk.
0: <laughs> for that elitism that exists in food, there's a disconnect from where does the food come from, there's that disconnect. But I think for people coming from the demographic that Miguel's explaining is that it's a concern of how do I even begin to get the food? And there's a concern about what resources will be available and how do I make this last a month? So the, the luxury of being concerned about the supply stream is something else. And, and that's just a concern that I think a lot of people take for granted. It's like whether or not we can physically obtain the food. And basically the food that they're so worried about getting is, is nutritionally non-existent, really.
1: Have you thought about how you're hoping to serve people like Ebony and Claudia?
0: It's going to be a long road. I kind of already know that. It would be working with state benefits to basically do a CSA designed for specific communities. We might extract some portion of their maybe EBT or something like that, but the rest gets subsidized, hopefully, whether it be by the state or donation or help support those demographics. Because for us, there is a logistical component of driving an hour with products to Mm -hmm. distribute and just covering those costs. And then, yes, needing to make some financial gain just to make it viable you know mm-hmm. and and that's kind of the, the struggle
1: just throwing it out there i could see there being some kind of like work share program where like you could get volunteers to work on the farm and in exchange they get a csa basket or, or some kind of
0: food i actually like that a cool. lot <laughs> yeah, like that a lot. yeah that's that's not a bad concept especially for youth interaction
1: yeah then it's
0: like something on their resume automatically oh that's a good one
1: yeah i used to do that <laughs> there's a farm called the sharing farm in my community and i would bike over and volunteer on a saturday morning it was great
0: so we do want to work with inner city youth because if you can teach them at a young age hey here's a frenchman radish and this is what you can do with it great but otherwise if you hand someone right now in the inner city who's maybe never even seen the thing it's just like what am I going to do with it and and that's a a fair thing right if you just haven't been exposed you haven't been exposed
1: yeah I want to know what to do with radish
0: (laughs) I I think radishes are great you can pickle them you put them on a taco you roast them Mm. I mean that's actually why it's in our logo is I'm a solid lover of radishes And, and they thrive in like the pit of winter
1: can't wait to try some of your radishes one day
0: Yeah, we will definitely have to send them up for sure.
1: (laughs) Sweet. You mentioned you guys work in the meat industry. What is it actually that you do? And I would love to hear too, what are some surprising things you've learned that maybe we don't see in the documentaries?
0: (laughs) So technically right now, the company that that, that we work for, they manufacture a fully recyclable PET tray to replace single-use foam trays for predominantly our marker is, is poultry
1: kind of like those those yellow styrofoam looking things that the meat comes on
0: yeah so we're replacing that yeah with they uh, okay. call a water bottle material so it could be reclaimed Very or
1: recycled, cool. so, and recycled
0: so and be less of call it an environmental burden when i first started i served as a director of quality so some of that required responding to Meat processors who were having some struggles with our our tray or just just handling called the transition and ensuring satisfaction was intact. Some of the things that I I, I learned when working with these industries is, one, the sheer scale. And when we talk about millions of pounds of chicken per year consumed in the U.S., it's like, wow, that's a big number. But we can't Mm -hmm. physically understand what that looks like. And when you go to these facilities, you see what it takes It's kind of a weird thing, which is I agree that there are issues in the food industry, absolutely, or the industrial meat complex. And I think adjustment is necessary. But at the same time, this is kind of the only way we could have met the scale. Because specifically Mm -hmm. within the US, we've kind of made a decision to eat really large quantities of meat. It's not like maybe a more Japanese kind of culture where meat is a flavor additive. It's not necessarily the centerpiece. And Mm -hmm. it's definitely not 16 ounces. And then it was also realizing that industry does not react to change very well at all. Their world has just been running like a freight train is like, Hey, we just crank it out. That's what we do. We just process meat and just Mm -hmm. we go, we go, we go. So now you're kind of throwing a speed bump of like, well, no, you need to transition your process and that's can be met with some anxiety. And I will say is it is recognizing when you're in some of these meetings is how much power the consumer actually has. Before I, I definitely had a tonal quantity where I was like down with the industrial meat complex. And, and don't get me wrong, it's kind of still there, mm-hmm. but really that there's a shared responsibility, which is if the public does not fall through on voting with their dollar, as they say, mm-hmm. then there's no incentivization for the industrial meat complex to transition how they're running. right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a problem as well, which is when you do a sample group, people are saying, yes, I would absolutely pay more for a humanely raised bird. Mm-hmm. But when you go to the market, if it's $2 more, then it's off the table. We go to the bright yellow 20 cent off mm-hmm. section of meat, you know, and mm-hmm. then, cause we, we hunt the sale, you know, mm-hmm. right? couponing is a pastime for people. So that, <laughs> that becomes a little tricky and, and kind of looping it back to even our struggle from a market standpoint is what is the cost or the value of convenience? That's where we compete with grocery stores directly, which is you go to one place You get everything you need, and it's priced at a very affordable point. You know, it's just not something small farmers, I think, can compete with, right? Because we're not working in bulk. My chicken per pound for me to survive is not going to be less than the grocery store Mm -hmm. unless it becomes the new standard by which we operate.
1: I think it's a psychological thing, too, of like, if you're used to paying a certain price for something, like, why would I pay more for the same thing? But, you know, you do have to see it as not the same thing, right? We actually had our friend Joel Salton on the show, and he was talking about it in terms of nutrition. He gave the example at his farmer's market stand he was selling eggs for five dollars a dozen and some lady walks up she's like i would never pay five dollars a dozen she was drinking this can of diet soda and he was like well ma'am one of my eggs has more nutrition than your can of diet soda (laughs) and so it, it comes down to quality right like how much are you actually getting for that you know five dollar piece of chicken or, or whatever it is and it's a totally different product from a pastured farm like yours versus the supermarket
0: no 100 percent. you can get cage-free eggs or you can get pastured eggs however there's a weird situation whereby the american palate is so used to that flavor profile or the lack thereof that making the change to something that is just naturally flavorful like what does real beef taste like what does mm-hmm. pork that's not pink taste like? And that's the red is a good thing. It's not a bad thing in pork, yeah. you know, just bringing it back from this hyper domesticated thing we've created. That's a transition. And so that's always like the fear too, is that just people's palates have become accustomed <laughs> to those yeah. standards and you like what you like. You know, for me, I, I love pastured eggs, but if you don't, I mean, I, I guess I get it. It's, it's defining what your personal culinary experience is. If Joel Souten was saying, like, yes, his egg definitely has greater nutritional value than a Diet Coke, and his egg will not strip rust off a bumper for you, it is a valid point, is that people don't think in terms of nutrition. It's about what is the satisfaction, what is the bang for your buck. When we go to restaurants, so much of how we judge it is actually by the quantity of food in which they give you, not necessarily the quality. Those are American food habits that I think will have to change at some point. And I think, you know, with the younger age bracket, we're figuring it out slowly Mm -hmm. and we're willing to privilege those things. But I'll also be fair to them and say that, yeah, it's an uphill task and depending on where you live, it's harder to find.
1: Another thing that came up in conversation with Joel is will regenerative agriculture feed the world? And his answer was, yes, absolutely. It is the only way because the other way is causing all these downstream problems. In theory, I agree with him. I want to agree with him. But, you know, you guys are doing this, like, actually boots on the ground. It seems like it's going to take a while before you can get to any type of scale compared to those giant chicken factories that you saw. And so how do we rectify that? Is it just we all have to scale back on eating meat? Or do we just have to have a lot more farmland? What are your thoughts around scale?
0: It's a really interesting point because I've heard Joel Salatin on like uh, several other interviews kind of make the same statement. And, and I'm in the same boat as yourself is I would love to to say that yes, that is possible. And I, and I think it is. But I think that the chance is unfortunately fairly slim. And just to put it out there. I love Joel Salatin. He's an idol by all means. I just I don't necessarily meet him eye to eye on that in the sense that so let's say us as a farm. Let's say we do 10,000 birds the year. That is not even a fraction of a truckload of birds at a plant. And there's been instances where I've seen six or seven truckloads pulling up at the same time for that facility to process that day. So Mm -hmm. that's where, yes, competing with that scale is not feasible. And and I think, honestly, if you try to, it's kind of defeating the purpose, right? Like you're just replicating this huge scale of methane production. Yes, composting can do a lot, but that's a lot compost. And that's a lot <laughs> for that environment to handle. So I think you're just kind of replacing the venue in which you're creating it. And ours happens to look a little more sightly, right? But probably to be quite frank is yes, it's less brutal and it's better the animal, but yeah, you know, if your focus is efficiency in the dollar, then no, our model doesn't really thrive. I do think that permaculture agroforestry these alternatives can fix the food problem as i'll call it however it's a group effort i think a portion of it is yes reducing the excessive amount of, of meat consumption i also personally wouldn't say you know go vegetarian if you don't want to um for me that's like culinarily just not an option i wish i i, I could do it but i'm also at this mindset of i'm willing to accept the responsibility for my portion of the meat consumption
2: Hey, man, you know, our neighbors, like they have like 50 chickens and like that little section of garden. I mean, that's a pretty good example of scale, right?
0: No, I, I actually that's like a super relevant point, which is that on a half acre, so not a large plot of, of land. We have a neighbor who in that space has a 30 by 10 garden plot that produced pretty much his family's worth of vegetables for the summer and also uh, 50 meat chickens in that year and they filled their freezer. They did, And meat chickens only take two months. So it's not something you need to exert your whole summer on, you know, because I think that's where a lot of trepidation comes in is that you're going to have a, you know, six month, seven month, eight month obligation to your meat chicken. That's not true, depending on the variety, of course. But they, on a small scale, became fairly self-sufficient or drastically reduced their grocery bill. And that's the other thing too, is that all this stuff is financially advantageous to whoever chooses to do it. For example if you have chickens and they lay eggs if you wake up all of 10 minutes earlier in the morning you potentially save three dollars a week in eggs but you're also getting a great nutritional quantity so it's kind of like is it worth the 10 minutes i know some people would argue no but our neighbors are kind of like this living testimony to the fact no you can do it on a really small scale i mean there's books about being self-sufficient on a quarter acre for a nuclear family you know, even planting boxes in your apartment is, is very doable. The other thing is to reducing mm-hmm. how much corn-based product you're eating provides this opportunity for maybe the government subsidies to shift towards support of these better agricultural practices. But the consumer takes that responsibility instead of like, you know, us select few farmers trying to say, hey, we're giving you the alternative. We kind of need that, that vote of confidence or support that's where i encourage this return to engaging in politics at a local level if you know you want to write to your town or you want to write to the state and say hey i want to allow for custom meat processors to be able to sell into a large number of venues or to sell to the public and change those ordinances that helps significantly because it's going to improve their access to the resources they want which might be sustainable meat it makes our market access greater because the worst thing I can imagine right now for myself is I over-raise. I then process my batch of poultry, and then something goes to waste. I think, like, sentimentally, I just, I would have such a hard time with, I have a problem with food wastage in the U.S. Anyway, education matters. Because, again, for example, the brown spot on your beef is not because it's bad. It's oxidation. It's past its blooming period on the shelf. It's still okay. Give it a sniff. And, it, <laughs> yes. and, and you'll be fine, I promise. The common sense needs to return to food. A semi-trailer carrying your chicken and trucking it 200 miles, I think we can all just at a baseline common sense say, all right, that's not the best.
1: Yeah, yeah, right.
0: You know, it's not <laughs> the best. A chicken, which is a bird living out in the woods, having a good time, before it goes to the greater pasture, it, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit better, right? It's on both sides of the aisle, I'll say. Like, the store aisle is both sides need to make adjustments. I think... Only then can regenerative agriculture really make the shift because right now I just think the mountain is a little bit too steep.
1: Are you seeing any legislative changes that give you hope?
0: Yeah. So Connecticut is actually proposing a bill similar to what I was just mentioning, which is they're trying to make it where custom so FSIS meat processors, which is kind of like they're handled by the public health department. They're not handled by the USDA, Uh, Mm. so state level versus federal level. And they would be allowed to sell their meat products to restaurants within the state of Connecticut. That really helps quite a bit if I want to raise maybe a thousand birds, get it processed locally, less stress to the animal and still sell into these larger retail environments. Because right now that's just not possible unless I go and do USDA, which also increases my my cost. That Mm -hmm. USDA stamp costs quite a bit. So those kind of improvements. They're starting to show up. COVID has actually driven a lot of that conversation. You know, the aisles of grocery stores are just devastated. That was probably the first time I've seen a lot of people go out of their way to go find farms. It's just because they literally couldn't buy meat products, eggs, or other basic things at the store because it was just completely raided. You know, yeah. people were just stockpiling the freezer. So. Legislation is coming. And I think with our age bracket coming into maturity, we are the ones doing the groceries now for ourselves. We are getting to to push the market trends that these companies see on the other end. And then in turn, you might see the states shift to accommodate as well.
1: Yeah, I think you're right in that our generation stepping into power. We're stepping into purchasing power. We're making our own decisions, starting businesses like you guys are, and, you know, going into politics. So I think the next 10, 20 years will be really interesting to, to see these changes pan out. I guess wrapping up, Miguel, what's next for you on the farm?
2: We got to build uh, a little uh, house by the pond. It's going to be like a little duck house. So like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm excited about going there and just like messing with the water. The Water has its own little issues and stuff like that. It's it's a project, you know, the whole thing's a project, so there's like an issue with everything. We just got to, you know, go down the checklist.
1: <laughs> the ducks get priority. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, where can folks follow along your journey if they want to learn more?
0: So we are on Instagram at Fern Mill farm. We are starting a Patreon and we have, we have Facebook as well. We're always open to being messaged or reach out to us. If you have any questions, if you're trying to do a project like this, we love hearing about it. We're happy to come help if you're in the area for free and just because it's learning for everyone.
1: Spread the love. All right. Well, thank you so much guys.
0: Thank you. And thank Take you. Care.
1: And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.